Hello, hello. Um, yeah, so this is pretty awesome. Thank you for the uh, applause. Um, contrary to popular belief, I'm actually not giving a TED talk. So yeah, let's start there. Um, so a couple things about me. Um, I am the worship and arts director here at Redemption Tempe. Uh, I do a couple things under that umbrella. Uh, one of the more visible things that I do is I lead us in singing. So it's a tremendous privilege to be able to come before you guys uh, every week and be able to sing songs together, to sing biblical truths together. Um, the other part of what I do is pastoral training. So it's been pretty awesome to have Ricardo around. One quick thing about Ricardo, uh, if you want to steal your way to Ricardo's heart, um, quote Martin Lawrence, like Martin Lawrence and just like the show Martin in general is like his total wheelhouse. So do that. Um, and you can like love him really well. Um, but yeah, so part of his pastoral training. So I get to go to our preaching collective, which is where all of our teaching pastors get together and talk about, uh, the series that we're preaching. They talk about all that. And, um, that's been a huge, huge blessing to me to be able to learn from guys that are a lot smarter and a lot wiser than I am. So that's part of it. And then the third part of what I do is, um, with art here. So we have these yearly art exhibitions that we host in here. And then we also have, if you have seen in the lobby, we have art. So the, all the art that's in there that you're not sure if you love or hate yet, um, feel free to talk to me about, and we can have some good art conversations. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Um, on, on behalf of the staff here, I did want to say um, we don't ever want to get tired of preaching the gospel here. Um, we're all about redemption. We have a section on our website where uh, it's called Redemption Stories, and basically it's a bunch of journalists and photographers who have gotten together to tell stories about how God changes lives, about how God changes relationships, neighborhoods, communities. Um, so if you're ever looking for a place for encouragement of just practical application of God's redemptive work in people's lives, um, check out the Redemption Stories section of our website. Um, another thing before we kind of get into the text here, um, and this is, this is my time to put on my, uh, let's have a serious conversation hat. So don't be mad at me for doing this. Um, I wanted to address, uh, singing together. I think we have an interesting reputation, uh, as redemption of being the more stoic church. Um, and I think that is oftentimes to our detriment. Um, we get together and a lot of us sort of stand there and look at the words. And if you're there, I understand that. I've been there before. And sometimes you don't really want to sing out and sort of emote. But um, if that's you and you find yourself there all the time, I would definitely encourage you to sing out. Um, there's something that's really intrinsically good and valuable about lifting your voice up and singing gospel truths together with other people. Um, so I would definitely encourage you to do that. Um, we're going to have a chance at the end of the service today, like we do every week, to do that. Um, and seriously, do not worry about what your voice sounds like or what the person next to you thinks. She's probably not going to go on a date with you anyway, so don't worry about it. Um, yes, so let me, um, let me preface this, uh, this passage really quick. So there's a big critique of, uh, of young preachers that they way too often re- rely on superlatives uh, to get their point across. So knowing that, I'm going to start off by saying that this is the greatest passage in the entire Bible. So the bar is high. Um, let me pray for us really quick. Lord God, I'm grateful for this opportunity. Um, I'm grateful today for who you are. God, I thank you that your righteousness is a gift. I thank you that I don't have to work for it. Um, God, I pray that you would use me however you will today. Spirit, I pray that you would inform everything that is said. Thank you that the Bible is a book that is not about confusion, but about clarity, God. Please work in our lives and give us practical application today through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Okay, today we are going to be in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. There's going to be some guys walking up and down the aisle. Keep it raised high. If you don't have a Bible, um, this is our gift to you. Go ahead and keep it. If you do have a Bible, go ahead and put it back on the shelf uh, at the end of the service. So we're going, to, we're going to talk about the gift of God's righteousness today. Um, and inside of that, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about our righteousness, we're going to talk about God's righteousness, and we're going to talk about our redemption. So these hand signals have been perfected by leading for children's ministry every week. So if you guys want some more hand signals in the worship service, fill out an info card and put it in the back, and we'll, we'll start singing like Father Abraham and stuff. So it'll be awesome. Um, Let's, uh, let's read this passage together, starting in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The first thing that we're going to talk about is our righteousness. We need to address the law in here. So when Paul addresses the law, um, here's what I had thought of the Old Testament of the law in general. I had thought for most of my Christian life that the law is basically a comprehensive list of do's and don'ts to keep God happy, or at least a comprehensive list of do's and don'ts to keep God off of my back. The fact of the matter is, biblically, We don't have evidence for that being a thing in the Old Testament or the New Testament, and it certainly isn't today. The actual function of of, uh, the law is about expressing a relationship with God and not establishing a relationship with God. Okay, expressing a relationship with God and not establishing one. Uh, There's a photographer, not a very well-known photographer, named Ansel Adams. Um, He's like the most famous photographer in the world. It's not a big deal or anything. Um, He... uh, he became famous for taking these really luminous black and white kind of romanticized pictures of mountains and rivers and all that stuff. This guy was basically the epitome of a tree hugger before that was even a term. And uh, he realized he could capitalize off of his success by hosting these juried workshops. So what he would do is he would effectively have this gathering where you would get, you would go in and you would submit your pictures to him. He would sort of do an interview process for you and he would decide if you were good enough to take his, to do his workshop, to pay him thousands of dollars so he could tell you how to take pictures. And, uh, it's a ridiculous concept when you think about it, but he, what he did inside of that is he created this without even trying, he created this class of guy. So tell me if you've seen this guy around, um, Good places to find this variety of person is like Sedona or Tempe Camera or something. But you have a guy, so picture this with me, like photo vest, like photojournalist vest with like 8,000 pockets, like an iPad pocket right here. And then like a light meter around his neck, uh, typically glasses, um, typically like older gentlemen, right? Um, oftentimes a cowboy hat with or without like an eagle feather in it. Um, but my point of that is this. So Ansel Adams, without even trying created a group of people who tried to establish a relationship with him by being like him and doing things, right? We have a relationship with God where we oftentimes try to do that. I know in my life, I've tried to do that a ton. It, it boils down to this try, try harder, be better, do more. Um, and the fact of the matter is relationships don't grow out of following rules. We've never seen a case of relationship that grows. No matter how joyfully or begrudgingly you're able to follow rules, relationships do not grow out of following rules. Relationships grow out of putting someone else's needs above your own. Um, So again, in the Christian life, this is how it boils down. 
It boils down for us in this way. We say, if I do this, then God will give me things. God will do more for me. So if I read my Bible more, God will love me more. And this is, this is the logic oftentimes that's perpetuated in this kind of thinking. Um, the, Paul, what Paul's presenting here and what I think the entire Bible presents is a bigger picture is a relationship with God that goes a little bit more like this. God did, therefore I. Okay, it's not I do, therefore God does for me. It's God did, therefore I. So a lot of what we're doing is reactive and not trying to be prescriptive, trying to get to a point where God does things for us, right? So one of the great things about the Bible, and one of the great things that I think is awesome about the Bible, is that it has the highest view of truth, um, and it, sh- it seeks to show us who we really are. Um, for someone who's really emotional, who cries watching most movies, um, like myself, it's, uh, it's a really comforting truth to know that my emotions are not me, um, I am, I am not my emotions, and our emotions are not our identity, right? For, as Christians, what we do is we go back to the book of Genesis to find our emotions. Um, we see in the book of Genesis that God created us. Stop there for a second. God built us. The God who made the universe and everything built us. This is something that is really hard to try to actualize in our minds, the fact that God created us. On top of that, he declared us with all of creation very good also crazy. On top of that, as, as Pastor Ricardo mentioned last week, he mentioned the Imago Dei, right? The image of God. God made us in his image. If there's anything that this tells us about ourselves, it's that we have a God-given intrinsic dignity and self-worth that comes from him. So we see two conflicting worldviews here when we look at culture and when we look at the Bible. When we look at culture, what we hear is you're effectively worthless because life is meaningless. And when we listen to the Bible, what we hear is, you have intrinsic dignity and self-worth, and I made you very good. Two very, very drastic things. Um, our problem, of course, enters in Genesis 3. When we look to Genesis 3, we realize that, that man has effectively forfeited his own righteousness. So let's read in, uh, in verses 22 and 23 here. I'm going to pick it up from the middle of, of uh, verse 22. It says, For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A couple weeks ago in Romans 2.12, we heard that all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Here's what we know ultimately about our righteousness before God. It's not righteousness at all. We don't have righteousness. There's no exemption. All of us are in the same boat, and ultimately no one is righteous. This This is where our issue comes in. We don't have righteousness. God does. As we look at God's righteousness, and this is what we do um, when I came up here earlier in a time of adoration, we do things very deliberately here. So we start our service off at the time of adoration. What we do when we do that is we put ourselves in our place, right? We start with adoration so we can rightly put God in his place and worship him as the beautiful, loving, omnipotent, gracious, righteous God that he is. It's an interesting thing when we move into a time of confession because there's a stark contrast that comes out of that, right? We realize that we don't have righteousness and we confess of our sins every time. The great thing is that God doesn't leave us there, though. So one of the really pervasive things about our culture and our place in history is that we think we know everything. We think we have a pretty good handle on history. And we think that we ultimately have some kind of objective view of where we're at and what we believe. Um, One of the things that we do need to realize, though, is that we are almost, as a culture, completely entrenched in postmodernism 
existentialism, pluralism, all other sorts of isms. And we, we really have uh, guys like Friedrich Nietzsche and Martin Heidegger coming in and saying, there's no such thing as truth. You are what you feel. Your truth is good for you, but it's not for me. These are the kind of things that our culture very subtly puts out there, and we believe on, on, on some level. We need to realize that there are drastically separate things um, about these truths and biblical truths. Um, when I was in college, I studied art at ASU, um, and I took a class called Photography and Language, and this class was interesting. It was a three-hour seminar once a week, and this class, without fail, always turned into a knockdown, drag-out argument over whether truth was a thing. So, um, particularly the objectivity versus subjectivity talk was, it, it just got, like, personal. Like, people were brought to tears on more than one occasion because I told them there was such a thing as truth. Apparently, that's really offensive to a lot of people. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about our culture, and particularly in higher education, I heard this all the time at ASU, but even I was watching a, a documentary the other night, and it was about prohibition, and there was a line in it that went something like this. Everyone agreed on this law, blacks and whites, men and women, Christians and free thinkers. And I'm just kind of stopping, like, <laughs> don't say that, please. Like, we, we have this, this by and large view that our culture promotes of us being this restrictive kind of extremist, like, they just want to believe in their little box and keep to themselves, and they, they're not free thinkers. They can't be honest with themselves. Um, the good truth that we have is that, um, again, the Bible has the highest view of truth, the highest view of truth. G.K. Chesterton, in his book Orthodoxy, has a great chapter called The Suicide of Thought. He puts it this way. Then there's the opposite attack on thought, that urged by Mr. H.G. Wells when he insists that every separate thing is unique, and there are no categories at all. This also is merely destructive. Thinking means connecting things and stops if they cannot be connected. It need hardly be said that this skepticism forbidding thought necessarily forbids speech. A man cannot open his mouth without contradicting it. Thus, when Mr. Wells says, as he did somewhere, all chairs are quite different. He utters not merely a misstatement, but a contradiction in terms. If all chairs were quite different, you could not call them all chairs. One of the interesting things about being a human being is that we need categorization. We need to be able to call cats cats and dogs dogs. When we disband our ability to be able to do that, all hell breaks loose, right? So one of the things that is great about the Bible is that it gives us categories for what is good and what is bad. We see God as righteous and us as unrighteous. Let's look at Psalm 36. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. We have two really powerful word pictures at play here, one of which is God's judgment being as deep as the ocean, and the other is God's righteousness being like a mountain. I got a chance a couple summers ago to go backpacking through Germany and Switzerland with some close friends, and uh, we made the um, really idiotic decision to hike to this hostel in the middle of the Alps instead of taking the cable car. Um, my friends were like, yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be great. Um, of course it starts pouring rain and it's just a completely miserable hike for like five hours up into the Alps. So as we're getting up there, it's like the end of the day. Um, there's basically no visibility. It's all just super cloudy, super rainy. And, um, so we, we get up there, we settle, we settle in for the night. Um, we wake up in the morning and this is, uh, so this, this hostel is, is quite literally in the middle of the Alps. You're 
right in the middle. This, it's this hostel and mountains everywhere. So this was kind of my reaction as I walk out of the front door of this, this hostel, not having seen where I was the night before. It was this experience. It was like, oh, yeah, okay. Okay. And uh, it, was, it was like just being punched in the chest by this mountain or something. Like you're, you're standing before it, and just the sheer size of it makes you go and just try to catch your breath for a second because you're just looking at it, and there's nothing that you can do to even be comparable in size to this mountain, right? We would be idiots if we were, oh, you could compare me to that mountain, right? It's the same thing for those of you who have been to the Grand Canyon before. There's no amount of pictures I can show you or descriptions I can read you that match the experience of being to the Grand Canyon, just seeing how massive it is. It's a completely different thing. That's why I think this is a really helpful word picture um, when we see that God's righteousness is completely insurmountable in scope. So this is where our predicament enters, right? We have God's righteousness that's completely insurmountable in scope. We have our righteousness, which is not righteousness at all. We think about the last two chapters of Romans. In, in Romans one eighteen, we hear that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. This is bad news. The good news comes in with God's plan for our redemption, though. We see that our standing before God does not come from our performance, but our standing from God comes from God. Some of us have been laboring in guilt and shame for years or even decades. And uh, so inside of that, that affects how we live our lives, right? One of my favorite shows, I will go so far as to say it's the best show on television, is Mad Men. And uh, this show, I think, is so brilliant. Um, because there's a serious realness in how they portray these characters, right? They're not these idealized superhumans. Um, they have flaws. They have guilt. They have shame. They have insecurities, right? And the person that is wrought with the most guilt, shame, and insecurity is the main character of the show. On the outside, um, he's this dapper man's man. All the ladies want to be with him. All the guys want to be him. And uh, he, his name's Don Draper, and he goes... Uh, he, he has an interesting situation because he grew up in a brothel, which I can imagine is an interesting upbringing for anyone. But he uh, has a flashback in the, in the last episode of the show, and um, it goes back to sitting at the dinner table at this brothel. And this traveling preacher comes in. And what he says to Don at this moment in the show sticks with him. And it's stuck with him for his entire life. The traveling preacher says this. The only unpardonable sin is to believe God cannot forgive you. Some of us are there. You know, some of us have been raised in families that were physically or emotionally abusive. Some of us carry a tremendous amount of guilt and shame from the things that we've done in the past or the things that have been done to us in the past. And for those of us who are there, um, I want to say this to you. You don't, you don't have to carry that. You don't have to be perfect, and you certainly don't have to have your crap together for God to love you or forgive you. You don't have to do that. God loves you deeply, and he wants to run to you today. Do you remember what he told you in Genesis 1? He declared you very good. The only person who can declare you very good, the person who made those mountains that we look at, declared you very good. If that doesn't say anything to you about your self-worth, I don't know what does. We get now to the greatest conjunction in the entire Bible. This is why I said this is the greatest passage in the entire Bible. Let's, let's read this passage again starting in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We see here in the word redemption a slavery connotation, right? Redemption is an amazing word. We named our church after it, but we see this word existing in here, and it has these connotations attached to it. When you think about slavery, you, you redeem someone out of slavery by purchasing their freedom. That, that's, a, that's powerful for us today. God, through Jesus, purchased our freedom with his shed blood, and he gave his righteousness to us. The most vile person on earth sharing in the righteousness of Christ is more beautiful to God than the most virtuous man that ever lived. Christianity is the only belief system that presents us with this perfect, omnipotent, loving, gracious, just God giving his righteousness to us. It's not appropriate for us to name what we believe a religion or a philosophy. It's a gospel. This is a good news. That's why we, we call it gospel. It means good news. Some of us are still under the impression that Christianity is about the things that we have to do in order to appease God, and that's not Christianity at all. Again, it's the only belief system wherein a loving, omnipotent God gives us his righteousness. Is there anything more powerful or freeing than the fact that God gave you his righteousness? The great invitation of God's righteousness is that it's a gift received through faith. The gospel has the the power to free men and women that are in the bonds of spiritual slavery if they accept the gift. Oswald Chambers from his book, My Utmost and His Highest, puts it this way. There's a certain pride in people that causes them to give and give. But come and accept a gift is another thing. I'll give my life to martyrdom. I'll dedicate my life to service. I will do anything. But do not humiliate me to the level of the most hell-deserving sinner and tell me that all I have to do is accept the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. This is the counterintuitive reality that we live in. Jesus positively fulfilled righteousness in the law on our behalf. There's four things that we can do that are practical responses today. The first thing we can do is repent. What do we do when we see Jesus dying on the cross? We realize that our sins and our former pursuits were buried with him in that tomb 2,000 years ago. The second thing we can do is accept the gift. If you've never acknowledged God's love for you and his work in redeeming you to himself, do it. Pray that he would give you new eyes to see the extent to which God went to redeem you. We look at Romans one twenty nine for that. We were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do you see the extent that God went to save you? We see in Romans 5, 8, we're going to see this in a couple weeks, that God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still inside that laundry list of vices, Jesus bled on our behalf. The third thing that we can do as a response is get to know the giver of the gift. One of the things that we do as a, as a discipline here is we encourage people to read their Bibles and to pray to God. This is not an impossibly unapproachable book. Dig in. If you've never read the Bible before, start in the Gospel of John. Ask that God would show you things. Read a couple verses at a time. 
Commit time daily to read the Bible and to pray. It does amazing things for your walk with Christ. And the fourth and final thing we can do is this. We trust him with our entire lives. We look at who God is and what he's done for us. And we allow that to influence how we work, how we study, how we recreate, how we make decisions, and how we live our lives. I'll close with this hymn by Philip Bliss. Free from the law, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ hath redeemed us once for all. Once for all, O sinner, receive it. Once for all, O doubter, believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all. There on the cross, your burden upbearing. Thorns on his brow, your Savior is wearing. Never again, your sin need appall. You have been pardoned once for all. Now we are free. There's no condemnation. Jesus provides a perfect salvation. Come unto me, O hear his sweet call. Come, and he saves us once for all. Let's pray.